morning. We're looking at a section in Mark where we'll get to see a lot of insiders versus outsiders, as Mark puts it. Mark is showing us a picture of what it means to be for Jesus and what it means to be against him. And ultimately, that is what Jesus is doing in Jerusalem at this time. He is defining, defining boundaries, who is with him, and then by contrast, who is against him. We will wrap up this section, as I've called in the literary structure, the bulletin, called Jesus as Healer, Teacher, and Exorcist. And next Thursday, we'll go through parables connected throughout thoroughly to this section. So it'll be sort of a part one, part two message because the next section in chapter 4 we'll look at will be closely connected to this message. So, the emphasis of this text is that forces are trying to obstruct Jesus from or undermine his message, his mission, his crusade, or his conquering, in a sense, in the spiritual realm, by occupying him from doing other things, or physically hindering him, and people try, they want their miracle healings or they try to foil his plan by limiting his teaching and preaching ministry. And as the text will show us today, he is not the limited, he is the limiter. And throughout, through this, Mark shows us one of the notes in what I call the melodic line. Jesus brings the kingdom of God to earth in full as the messianic king. And he teaches us how to be worthy of that kingdom by becoming his disciples. So the discipleship is crucial in this text. I've titled my message today, The Devil Could Not Hinder Jesus From Saving You. The Devil Could Not Hinder Jesus From Saving You. I'll break this down to two points today. First, looking at verses 7 to 19, Jesus chose you to be his disciple. And my second point, looking at verses 20 to 35, Jesus stormed the devil's house to make you his own. Jesus chose you to be his disciple, and Jesus stormed the devil's house to make you his own. My first point then, looking at verses 7 to 19 again. Jesus chose you to be his disciple. On our, mar- on our way through Mark for now, we have seen Jesus healing the paralytic that was lower down through the roof. He has called and dined with Levi, the tax collector. He, has confronted, he was confronted by Pharisees who came and accused him of being a sinner, almost. But Jesus said that he came to be with sinners because those were the ones he came to save. Then we have looked at some questions of, about fasting, feasting, wineskins, and these garments, and uh, followed by what is allowed to do on the Sabbath. And we ended with Jesus' words that, is it lawful to do good on a Sabbath? And this is setting up the, the, um, setting up the background for it. Because the Pharisees and the Herodians, they plotted to kill him. So they said he is a sinner who is with sinners. And Jesus is triumph, triumphing over them over and over again by his teaching and his wisdom. And he's saying, is it lawful to do this? Or is it lawful to do that? Is it lawful to kill or to heal? He heals, and they plot to kill. And after this, these episodes in, verse, in chapter 3, ver, we move to verse 7 in our text today. 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him, from Galilee to Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And the great crowd heard all that he was doing. They came to him when they heard it. They came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Again, Jesus again uh, withdrew with his disciples from a great crowd, which followed him for all over. This is not just the, well, and then Jesus decided he wanted to go there. It's more of a retreat to seek solitude and rest, but he finds no lasting peace there. Because people, a large crowd, gathers from all around. Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. Edomia is 120 miles or 180 kilometers south. And Tyre and Sidon is 50 miles or 80 kilometers north. That is like the distance from Kristiansand to Bergen, as the, as the eagle flies. So they're gathering from Kristiansand to Bergen to come to Stavanger, basically. <laughs> That's the area that is covered. And the text says like, peop- they recognize people from all over coming there because his influence is so big at this point. And these areas are touched with Jews and Jew-Gentile mixed areas. So also the non-Jewish people are starting to hear Jesus' ministry and influence. And uh, in in the same chapter as our Old Testament text, Isaiah 47, 49, sorry, in verse 6, not our Old Testament text, but in the same chapter, we get a foretaste of what this expanse of Jesus' ministry looks like. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the, preser- the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations, for the nations, that my salvation my, may reach the end of the earth. So Jesus' ministry is stretching. It's not just in Jerusalem, but it's all over the place. People are starting to hear what's happening. But ultimately, we do, we do see from the text why they're coming. Because they had heard all the things he was doing. They came to see a phenomenon. They came to see healing. They came to see miracles. They did not come for his teaching, for his preaching, or for who he was. We might be presumptuous and think, oh, those people are so awful. They just came to see the show. But would we have been different if we were there? We have the knowledge of the whole Bible, and we can see, oh, Jesus is this, and we can read on in the story. But they were live. They were, do, they were experiencing it in real time. So maybe we wouldn't have been so different either. And sadly, it is so true of many Christians today as well, or so-called Christians maybe sometimes who claim they want to, they are more caught up in what they can get from Jesus than getting to know Jesus himself. This is, and 
when reading this text, I saw the danger of looking at Bible pictures too much because they can be damaging to our understanding of a text. Many of us have probably seen Jesus teaching a great crowd. The people are sitting down on the ground, and Jesus is striking a pose and teaching something. That is not this. Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. As I open with, forces are trying to obstruct or undermine Jesus' ministry by hindering him or occupying him with things that are not his plan. I don't know if you've seen like a security camera footage from stores on Black Friday, this super sale day. People are clamoring. They're pushing, shoving, pulling, hitting. They're just rushing to get the flat screen TV or two of them or a new phone, or this or that. It looks like ants crawling to get their prey. This is what the text is indicating. It's not the, oh, sorry, Jesus, can I be healed now? They are crowding to get to Jesus. The word here is more crowding. It's a menacing word. It's pressing. It is crushing. It's pushing forward. They just want to touch Jesus. So it's almost as a mob thing. It's not just an orderly line. It's a mob crowd who's just trying to touch Jesus. And Jesus says, we need to have a boat ready because this can develop into something dangerous. They want to touch him because they're convinced that only by touching him they will be healed. And probably they were right. And Jesus did heal many as we saw in this text. And then there are the unclean spirits who fall before him and crying out, you're the son of God. One would be tempted to almost say, yes, finally, there's someone here who sees what's actually going on. But Jesus shuts them down. He doesn't want them to proclaim this. It is true, and they are right that he is the son of God, but Jesus doesn't want them to tell it yet. They, there's a, this notion in some commentators that by speaking someone's name, you would get power over them so you could control them by saying their name. But this is not the notion of this text, and other commentaries back it up as well. It's not this magic, oh, I got you, Jesus, by living in his power. They are just in the presence of a superior They are falling down and recognizing Jesus for who he is. So specifically, these unclean spirits are demon-possessed people, and it is the demons who are speaking through their hosts who say this. The crowd tries to fall upon Jesus to touch him, while the evil spirits fall before him. Fall before, prospipitin, in Greek, of course, eight times in the New Testament, and all of them, except one, it is someone inferior falling down before someone superior. It's a lesser falling before a greater in respect or in um, submission. And the demons, they are seeing that Jesus is who he is. They're not, John uses this, 
seeing or observing more of a I see who he is, like it's more of a faith-based observation, recognizing that, okay, this is who he is, and there's a, there's a conviction there, but in Mark it's just they see him and they recognize who he is. The, devil, the demon, demons, they know who Jesus is, but they have no faith, so they're not saved by it, so it doesn't help them. The people did not rec- recognize who Jesus was and almost violently grabbed for him, while the, while the spirits recognized him and fell before him, it almost makes us wonder who is more evil. The devil, the demons, the, uh, demons and devils, it's sort of the same things, and I, I interject the two, two of them. They call him Ha-Hyas-Tuthiu, the son of the God. It's, it's no like, oh, he's the son of a god. He's like, he's divine something. No, they, they know exactly who he is. They know there's only one god, and they know that Jesus is his son. So there's no like mysticism. Oh, he's a, he must be a god because they see some power in him. No, they, say, they see who he truly is. God the Father has already revealed this in one, chapter 1, verse 11, when the heavens tore open. And he said, this is my son. And devils, they recognize it over and over again. But the, the disciples, they, they do not understand it fully yet, I believe. And the first non-disciple human who recognized Jesus for who he is, is a Roman centurion at the cross. All the, at the end, a Roman, a non-Jew how far the people of God has fallen. They cannot even see the Messiah in their midst. They cannot see that he was the light of the world. But after this incident at the beach, if you could say it like that, he went up onto the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. At the back of our bulletin, I listed the key themes in Mark, where we see the kingdom of God, the identity of Jesus, and discipleship, to mention three of them. And all of these three are struck here in our text today. Jesus has so far called some of them, about five, and here he calls the full number of the twelve disciples. As I pointed out in a different sermon, a rabbi did not go out seeking uh, apprentices. He would not believe himself to be, that, was, that would be almost rude or presumptuous to go about, oh, I'll just find people to come and visit me, to, to sit under me and learn. They, there was not a thing, that was not a thing that they did. You would apply to a school to sit under a teacher, and he would accept you based on your credentials, and he would learn, he will teach you what the law said, what the, what the Torah said. But Jesus, he went out and he called to him those that he willed in this text and prior texts. And Jesus did not necessarily just call him to, call them to study the law, although that would be good and probably did that too. But first and foremost, he called them to be with him. It was a fellowship, it was a they were disciples. They were sitting by him, walking with him, acting, eating, living with him. It was not just a, oh, I'll come and study under him. 
And also, Jesus did not just have a board, board sign and say, anyone who wants to join, just follow. A lot of people did that too, but to his, to his team of disciples, if you will, he appointed. He said, follow me, come with me. He had this group of 12, who were, and also this group of 70, and also a big crowd beyond that. And it says that he appointed some to be apostles. Then Jesus went up into the hills and called to him. We might go past that a little quickly. It's not just a, a hill over there, and let's go on it. It's more of a mountainous area, probably the western hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And the important thing to take from this is that in Mark, he often uses mountains or hills or what could be mountainous areas to mark sites of revelation or transition into a new part of the ministry. So this is not just, oh, let's go up on the mountain over there instead of let's go down to the grassy hillside over here. It is a new chapter, in a sense, in Jesus' ministry where he appoints all of the twelve. He calls them to be with him, and he, he calls them to go out and do the same things that he did. It's almost showing or hinting back to Moses at Mount Sinai when he had the revelation of the Ten Commandments. It's that kind of seriousness we're talking about. And so he called. It was not just a, hey, Martin, do you want to join me? Hey, do you want to come? Do you want to come? No, it was he picked those that he wanted. Jesus determined the call, and his call comes, and they follow him. This call... Maybe say that many people say that this was when the church was first created, or at least the seed of, us, of it was planted. This is when the 12 apostles were appointed. And the call, I don't know if you know it, but church, the word for church in Greek is ekklesia. It's, it's based off of ek or ex and kaleo. Ex means exit or out. So when there's an exit sign, that is out. And kaleo, the call, someone's calling. So the church is the called out ones. They are called out in plural. It's called out once. It's not the called out one here and one there. It's a community that he calls us to. So it's not a me and my Bible and I can watch a sermon online. I know that circumstances are so that some people cannot find a church where they live or uh, have a hard time finding a solid church. So to, do not take this as a judgment, but take it as a summon and, a, and an invite to find one or to come here. This is what the Christian life was for them, and it's the Christian life for us. It is to be the, the called out ones. We are to partake in corporate worship, corporate, that is, all together, a group. What, that's what they did in the Old Testament, that's what they did in the New Testament, and that's what we are called to do today. R.C. Sproul, a theologian and pastor, once said that in the Old Testament they would use this ram horn, the shohar, shofar, and they would sound this, 
and it would echo across the mountains, and it would be a summon to gather to worship. That's why there is often a church bell in many churches to summon the called out ones. The called out ones are called to gather. They were called to gather the disciples, not necessarily just to learn the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures, as most rabbis would teach them. They were called to Jesus. Jesus was not just the path to learn more about God. He was the end goal. He was, the God. He was God himself. And he called them to fellowship with him. And these 12 were intentional, really 12. They could have been 3, 5, 7, 14. But Jesus chose 12. The Bible elsewhere hints and shows that these 12 disciples would be the 12 pillars of the New Jerusalem. That's why I'm backing up that these 12 were the new Israel, some say. They were the start of a new spiritual nation. We do not know much about these 12 men besides maybe Peter, James, John, and Judas Iscariot. But we know that they were appointed as apostles, apostolos, one who is sent off. And appointed is not a wrong word, but it's not as specific. The more specific word would be create or make. He made them something. He didn't just take what was there and say, okay, you'll do this, you'll do that, you'll do this. It was a remaking, it was a recreation in a sense. It's the same word used in Genesis 1-1 when God created the heavens and the earth. The text says Jesus created the twelve. He did not cho- he did not choose from something that was already there. He did not rearrange, but he created something and and by that appointed them to go out and teach and preach. He called them to be with him so that he could send them out after they had known him. They knew who he was. And this is the core of what discipleship is. It's not just a teaching of a theoretical nature. Like in Buddhism, for example, that is a way of life, or it's a, it's a theology in a sense. It's a theory of how to live. That is not discipleship. Discipleship is, sorry, Buddhism is a thought, an idea. One cannot be a disciple of one, of an of a idea, truly. But Jesus called them to be his. The apostle here is only mentioned one time in Mark. But disciple, that is used 45 times. And followers, a bunch of times. So it's not that the apostles were the super disciples, but they were disciples who were sent out with a specific purpose. Jesus gave them what he had so that they could operate in the same ministry that he did. And as a final note in this section, a commentator, James E. Edwards, gives three significant points on the list of the disciples, the names that is given. First, it's the fact that we know very little about the Twelve, who they were and what they did. He says that a lot of the people in church history are unknown heroes. 
Their faithfulness is known only by the Lord and true. I would also add that the first and foremost, it was their message, it was the, which was the important thing, not who the messenger was. Secondly, Edwards points out that none of the apostles came from a religious established or establishment or leadership. They were common folk, people of the land. And thirdly, he says that the inclusion of Judas's name is significant, as it might have been tempting for Mark to just scratch his name out of the books. But he kept it there. That he does not so scratch it out is a testimony both to his historical veracity and to his understanding of the church. Not all who are part of the church fellowship is sinless or even truly Christians, but also that Jesus called him even though he knew he would sin. In spite of his future sin, Jesus called him as well, and that for his own sovereign purpose. So we've seen the crowd come to get what they could from Jesus, not to hear him, not to be with him, or learn from him. They were caring more about their physical health than their spiritual being. Let us not be like them, that we come to church to get our fill. Human and spiritual forces try to hinder Jesus to do what he primarily came to do, namely preaching and teaching, which he says himself as well. But he left them and hindered the demons from speaking. And Jesus chose the the twelve apostles and the disciples, not the other way around. As it says in John, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Speaking of Christians. Christian, you have been called by God. You are a called out one, a part of the called out ones. There's not a one Christian, it's a fellowship of Christians we're called to, to be. There are only two options. Either you're spiritually dead and you want nothing to do with Christ whatsoever, or you have been called out by Christ and so you have been saved. There's no middle ground, there's no neutrality. You are either with Him or against Him. So if you're feeling sad or discouraged, know that your nervousness about it marks you as his. One who's spiritually dead care not about the spiritual things. So if you're nervous or anxious about your spiritual state, don't fret. Because if you were, you wouldn't care. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have been made new creatures. Now let us look at what Jesus did in choosing us, in choosing you, what he had to do to make you his own. Looking at the second point, verses 20 to 35. Jesus stormed the devil's house to make you his own. Jesus stormed the devil's house to make you his own. Looking at verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard about it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. 
And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided by itself against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may indeed plunder his house. Jesus and his disciples went home again, and the crowd gathered once more, so they could not even eat. Have you heard someone say those terrible words? Oh, no, he didn't. Oh, no, she didn't do that. This is where Jesus' family is now, in a sense. They're like, what is he doing? He is insane. What is happening? This is... They hear that Jesus is back and he's causing a ruckus. Oh, no, not again. The, relig- the religious leaders are after him and he's not backing down. We have to stop him for his own good. As with the story of the healing of the paralytic man who was lowered through the roof, the house is no, now so crowded that they can't even eat. The crowd is an obstacle to his ministry. His family then wants to take action. The Greek word is apparently they went to seize him for they believed that Jesus had gone berserk. It's not just, oh, he's misinformed. He is not thinking clearly. The meaning is he is gone. He is way off. He is gone berserk. There's no controlling him. So the seize him is not just, hey, let's talk to you about this a little bit. It is an attempt of binding, restraining, or even capturing him for his own, They maybe for his own good. They want to stop him. His own family. Not much better than when the scribes came down from Jerusalem, from the seat of authority, to judge him and observe him. And no longer do they say, as they previously said in chapter 2, why does this man talk like that? Like it's the questioning jab it's not the, now they've stopped that. They've said, like, he is the devils. It's not just, hmm, neither questioning themselves, like, who is that man? Or nudging other people, like, look at him, what is, what is he up to? This is, he is the devil. They've gone so far as to judge him that he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. The funny thing is that they're not denying Jesus' power to do stuff. They see him perform miracles. They see him heal people. But they accuse him from, of where his power or authority comes from. And they say it's from the devil and not from God. In, in our context, hearing or watching discussions between Christians and atheists, one might think that if they have just gotten some more proof the atheist will will yell show me show me there's uh, i heard this christian um, apologist once said that even if the moon would turn around fun fact we only see one the same side of the moon always but he said if the moon were to turn and on it it said god is real repent the atheist would not believe he would try to explain it away That is because enough proof 
well, there is no amount of proof that could resurrect a dead spirit. They say, show us some proof. And as the Bible says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And isn't that so true in the Bible? They saw, well, they saw Jesus die and they saw him live again, but they did not believe. So the amount of evidence is already clear in the light of nature. They did believe something, though, that he was of Beelzebul, or Beelzebul, or Beelzebul, Bub, Lord of Carrion, Flies, and Filth, Lord of the Dung and Waste Hill, Baal, the Prince, basically Satan, the Prince of Demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Translation, come on, scribes, you're not thinking clearly. Jesus uses this image of a kingdom divided against itself. The devil would never give Jesus power to defeat him. Jesus is saying, like, this is silly. That would be like a general in war against another general, and General A sends his troops to General B and asks, hey, use these troops to defeat me. Jesus is saying, like, this is just silly. Like, that doesn't make any sense. This is just foolishness. And Jesus illustrates this by these three examples of the kingdom, the house, and Satan. They're all being against themselves. They will not stand. And then he says, uh, the binding of the strong man. The binding of the strong man is bound by a stronger still. You cannot bind someone against their will if they don't want it if you are not stronger than them. Jesus is saying that if I bind myself, then sort of, that doesn't make sense. To bind the devil, you must have one who's stronger than the devil. He's saying, I am proving that I am that stronger man. And if you look at our Old Testament scripture for today, I have it here in Isaiah 49, 24 to 26. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? or captives of a tyrant to be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. When Jesus is freeing people by casting out demons, he's conquering the land, so to speak. He is freeing people by teaching them what true religion, what true discipleship is. He is gaining ground and in doing so binding the strong man and ultimately tying the last knot on the cross when Satan's power is fully broken. Then he will plunder his house. Every soul restored and brought back to life is a life saved out of the house of the devil. Verse 28, then, we move on to see what is taking place in the spiritual sense. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. This is what he says. 
all sins will be forgiven the children of men. But he gives this connotation. And whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, this is what he's pointing to, this is it. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. And this truly I say to you is, Amen, I say this to you. We normally say Amen at the end of a prayer as it truly or so be it. It's a let it be so phrase. But here Jesus starts off with it saying, this is the truth of it. As a reassuring for some, all sins will be forgiven, even if one blasphemes. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is guilty of eternal sin. Translation. I tell you truthfully, you're this close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, he says to the scribes. Blasphemy is to utter with words spoken or written or deeds to slander or defame the true God. He says that when you accuse me of doing the Holy Spirit's work and attributing it to the devil, you see that I'm doing things, power, miracle, resurrection, healings, and you say, this is the devil? They are saying that the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus is of the devil. And he says, you're this close to committing this unpardonable sin. The scribes had the audacity to claim that all the things that Jesus has done has been by the power of the devil. So if people look on Jesus and say, worker of the devil, that person is hopelessly lost. If you cannot distinguish good from evil from good or good from evil, if you cannot tell darkness and light from one another, is so lost that there's no help for him. As Isaiah 5 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The Bible speaks many places of this topic in the sense of sin. For it is, it is impo- this blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. For it is impossible in the case of those who once have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared with the whole, in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to be restored them again to repentance since they're crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That is, in a sense, what is happening. They're saying, Jesus, yeah, I know you died. I know you did a work of salvation that only you could do. But nah. For if you go on sinning, this is in Hebrews 6 and then Hebrews 10. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no lo- there no longer remains the sacrifice for sins. This might be ha- harsh and somber, and it's meant to be. But light is, com- light is coming. Stephen accuses the high, ca- the high Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, of the same thing in Acts 7.51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. But this is not and was not a Jewish problem. It is a human problem problem because of sin jesus is saying to the scribes watch it now you might not be forgiven 
it is right of him to warn of this danger then and for me to do it today. Because our preaching should handle this in two ways. In warning people from hardening their hearts and not to blaspheme God. The other way, Jesus says so much himself that God is willing to forgive all the sins and blasphemies blasphemies of men. He is willing and he does forgive. So it's not a doomsday verse. It's a warning and a reassuring in one. Are you here today and, you have wor- and you're worried if you have committed the unpardonable sin, as it's famously called, the sin that leads to no forgiveness? Are you worried that you have sinned too much, too grossly, too many times? Yes, the unfor- unpardonable sin is, in a sense, a line that one eventually crosses. But let me tell you, if you worry about having committed the sin of the unpardonable sin, having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, you have not committed it. Let me say that again. If you're worried, if you're anxious, if you have committed this sin that is not forgivable, you have not done it. Anxiety of doing so is the evidence of the work of repentance in you. No one in the Bible who asked for forgiveness did not receive it. On the other hand, if you persistently, willfully reject the work of the Holy Spirit in you and wants to do in you and feel no worse for it, if you feel not sorry for it, if you feel like this is whatever, couldn't care less what I'm doing, then you might be in the danger of committing it. The unpardonable sin. It's not the size of the sin, but the persistence of it. What if I sin then? Can my forgiveness be lost? I love what John MacArthur once said. He said, if I could lose my salvation, I would have already lost it. It is not ours to hold because we're not meant to and we're not strong enough. We're not perfect enough. Jesus saved us and it is he who keeps us. So again, if you worry about having done the pardonable sin, you have not. Because if you had, you would never have worried about it. Lastly then, verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mothers and brothers? And looking about those who he had with him, Looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Remember how his family just now wanted to tie him up because he was a loony, loony tune? He was berserk. This is probably the same people that comes to restrain him. And they say, Let us through. We're his mother and brothers. But Jesus flips it around and says, while looking at those who he has with him, listening to his teaching, these are my, sis- my brother and sister and mother. This is a huge contrast. One biological group tries to hinder his ministry, while the other is the spiritual family who is a result of it. 
One biological group tries to hinder his ministry, while the other is a spiritual family whose result of it. These are the people Jesus has rescued from the strong man. Jesus did storm the devil's house to save his own. And there are only two kinds of people here in this text. Those who sit by Jesus' feet, learning, and those who are outside with false assumptions. Jesus sums up what being a disciple is, and it is one who depends on Jesus and tries to do God's will. To conclude then, the devil could not hinder Jesus from saving you, because Jesus was the stronger one. Jesus chose his, his own, so Christian, you were selected, handpicked by Jesus himself. Jesus stormed, in fact, the devil's house, bound him, and rescued you so that you could be his own. He, he remade you to belong to his people. He made you his own. Jesus was and is today and is forever the strongest. He establishes his kingly rule every day and every, by every saved sinner he rescues and by everyone he keeps. This means forgiveness from sins. There's no neutrality in the gospel Either you're bound by the devil or you're rescued by Jesus. Christ brings to him those he will by his own sovereign election. And again, when it comes to sin, everyone has sinned sometime and we can't help from sinning altogether. But trust in Jesus. Struggling with doubt can come, but look to your love. Are you loving the righteousness you once hated or are you, and are you hating the sins you once loved? When you come home today, please read Romans 8 until you know there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.